0: Oh. Mm-hmm.
1: live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 22nd, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I don't have a lot to say tonight to... Um, warm up for this program. Tomorrow night, I'll be doing a program here with Brother Ryan, and the topic will be brotherly love,
0: something that so many in Christian identity are lacking. On August 31st, we begin a new program and a new venture,
1: which will air at 2 p.m. Eastern United States Eastern Time and will be entitled Christendia Europe, aimed at garnering some participation from our European brethren. Sven Longshanks will be my co-host. I look forward to that.
0: Hopefully we'll have um, some participation and, and, and some beneficial discussion. Tonight it's the Epistles of Paul,
1: Romans part 18. Part 18 of our Romans presentation. I never imagined it would go this long. It'll probably go at least two and possibly three additional segments. Tonight's subtitle is Government as a Punishment from God. For much
0: of Romans chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus explained how Christians should treat one another, also
1: exhorting his Roman Christian readers to prefer one another with diligence, meaning to discriminate in favor of one another at the expense of all others, and to be hasty in doing so. Paul also informed them that it is honorable to do so. Beginning that discussion in Romans chapter 12, Paul made two important admonitions. The Christians not conform themselves to this world, which we should bear in mind here, evaluating Paul's statements in Romans chapter 13. And the Christians
0: not think proudly, which we should also, Bear in mind here,
1: evaluating his statements concerning worldly governments. Instead, Christians should maintain themselves as mere members in a much larger body of Christ, doing what they can for that body and its other members. At the same time, towards the end of Romans chapter 12, Christians were also exhorted to leave vengeance and judgment in the hands of Yahweh their God. Here in Romans chapter 13, we see Paul explain how Yahweh executes his vengeance and his judgment, that he uses worldly power and authorities, which he appoints, in order to do so. Many pastors, even within Christian Israel identity, have struggled with Romans chapter 13 and many noble attempts have been made to explain it. However, they usually fall short, because once again, they neglect to consider the full biblical context of Paul's words. This chapter cannot be properly understood in isolation. Often in such considerations... It is imagined that Romans chapter 13 is talking only of governments which are godly. And what is missed, in my humble opinion, is this. There has never in the history of man been a government that is completely and truly a godly government. And even the government of David had its faults. Although it was close to being godly, and David surely was a man, after Yahweh's own heart, his government did not last very long beyond David's death. While there were attempts in early America and recent Germany to create what good Christian men perceived as godly governments which were based upon Christian principles, and they certainly were, these also have failed. And the real reason
0: and the real lesson which Christians must learn through all of this is that only Yahweh, their God, can
1: be their king in the person of Yahshua Christ.
0: However, Paul when writing his
1: epistle to the Romans
0: is at a completely
1: different stage in the history of the children of Israel than that of the founding fathers of the original American government or that of the National Socialists in Germany, who both did seek to found a government based on Christian principles. Paul lived And Paul was writing at a time which was near the height of the power of the Roman Empire, a government which, as the scripture itself certainly informs us, was also ordained by Yahweh. To understand this, as well as the context of Romans chapter 13, one must understand The ancient prophecies concerning the children of Israel and what was to happen to them because, as 1 Samuel chapter 8 informs us, they rejected their God as their king. The pattern of government first ordained by Yahweh God for the children of Israel was that Israel be a nation of kings and priests that every man govern with and administer to his own
0: family according to the law of God. From Exodus chapter 19 verse 6.
1: And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak, speaking to Moses, unto the children of Israel. That, this is still the divine will of God, is fully evident in the first epistle of Peter.
0: We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. And speaking to Christians among the dispersed of ancient Israel, he says,
1: but you are an elect race, the children of Israel. A royal priesthood, the 19.6. A holy nation, the people of Exodus 19.5 above
0: all other peoples of the earth as the scripture also says for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light in the period of the judges Yahweh
1: God and his law was king. The Levitical priests had functions in relation to the law for the administration of the kingdom, and the judges were arbiters in matters of justice and made sure justice was dispensed according to the law. But the judges were not rulers and neither were the priests. Even if once in a while Yahweh raised up one man or another, to fulfill a special leadership position in the performance of a particular task. When people sinned, they suffered tyranny. And at that time, there were many nations surrounding Israel which were more numerous and more powerful than the Israelites themselves were when they were without the favor of their God. So we read in Judges chapter 10, and I'll quote from verse 1. And after Abimelech, there rose to defend Israel Tola, the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir, in Mount Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty and three years, and died, and was buried
0: in Shamir. And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years.
1: Let me say that right around that time was probably the beginning of the Trojan War. Verse 4, and he had thirty sons that rode on thirty ass colts, which are hardly Instruments of war. And they had 30 cities, which are called Havath-Jair unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of Yahweh and served Balim and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and forsook Yahweh, and served not him. And the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year They vexed and oppressed the children of Israel 18 years. All the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was sore distressed. And the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, saying, we have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God, and also served Baalim. And Yahweh said unto the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites, that oppressed you? And you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Today, people would expect their televisions to deliver them. And the children of Israel said unto Yahweh, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee, Deliver us only, we pray this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served Yahweh. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. This is the general pattern which occurred all throughout the Old Testament period. The children of Israel forsake Yahweh their God. They are led off into sin and they are punished by tyranny and oppression until they repent there is no reason why this same pattern should not have persisted in the Christian era.
0: And according to the prophets of Yahweh, it certainly did. In Leviticus chapter 26, we read the consequences of disobedience by which Yahweh forewarned
1: the children of Israel. Among those consequences, we read from verse 27, And if you will not, for all this, hearken unto me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. Also, in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, or among the nations. And I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Here. In one of the earliest prophecies of the deportations and captivities of Israel and Judah, this judgment is directly connected to the concept of a prophetic seven times period of punishment. It was also foreseen as early as Deuteronomy that the ancient children of Israel would eventually reject Yahweh their God as king and demand an earthly king And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, When thou art come unto the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren. Shall thou set king over thee, and mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother? In 1 Samuel chapter 8, this prophecy became a historical reality where we read this, which was precipitated by an account that Samuel's sons turned out to be evil judges. And we read from verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto Yahweh, and Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee; For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of Yahweh unto the people, unto the people that asked of him: a king. The children of Israel, rejecting Yahweh their God as king. The seven times punishment as a result of their disobedience, which was prophesied earlier in Leviticus, became inevitable. Therefore, in the prophet Daniel, in chapter 2, we read that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saw a vision of a great beast. From Daniel's explanation of that vision, we read from verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay thou sawest until that a stone that was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces then was the iron the clay the brass the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power and strength and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, about 605 B.C., the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven has a given into thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest, That the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. It break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king. What shall come to pass hereafter? And the dream is certain. And the interpretation thereof, sure. Now this beast was to rule over all the earth, which means all of the Adamic Oikumene, the white world of the time, because the the and his successors never ruled over the non white worlds of the other continents. And this beast was also to rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. And even though the word for man in that passage is a plural form of the word enosh, it still means to indicate the general Adamic world and none other. Enosh is a word for man, which refers to the mortal man. And whereas Adam is a more specific word, any Adamic man can be described as an enosh and if you look at the Strong's concordance in the book of Genesis you'll see that the word enosh was often applied to adamic men it was never applied to beasts of the field even though the word enosh refers to the mortal man we perceive that perhaps every adamic man can be an enosh but not every enosh every apparently every mortal a parent man, can be an Adam. There were bastards in the Adamic world at that time, too. Daniel chapter 2 does not set a time for this beast, but it is obvious from the context that this beast begins with Nebuchadnezzar, who is identified in the interpretation as the head of gold. Comparing the parts of this beast to ancient history it endures through the Babylonian Medo-Persian Greek and Roman empires. In Daniel chapter 7 we see a similar prophecy which is identifying that same entity in a different way. There we read from verse 2. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold The four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made a stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it,
0: Arise,
1: devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw her in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. Later in the chapter, we read an interpretation of these four beasts and the horns which follow. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even for ever and ever. This is the stone cut out of the mountain in the vision of Daniel 2, the dispersed children of Israel of those Germanic tribes which destroyed the Roman Empire. Verse 19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his seed, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of his kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. And all of these things describe the emperor, Justinian, the 11th horn, the 11th emperor of the Byzantine Roman Empire and the papacy which he created in the laws which he established. Justinian's novels, chapter 131, establish the Bishop of Rome as having hegemony over the rest of the Christian church. The three kings who he de- destroyed were Totila, Vitigus, and Gelimer, There were kings of the Goths and Vandals who arose
0: after Rome's fall. Justinian's novels, the laws which he created, governed
1: Europe and are still the basis of European law, even today. The Gregorian calendar, which the papacy, the Justinian created, created the Gregorian calendar, and we live with that today. Verse 26. I'm sorry, I've read this. The vision of Daniel chapter 7 concerns a longer period of time than the vision of Daniel chapter 2. The vision of chapter 7 describes not only that first series of four empires, but another world power which succeeds it. That power is said to rule for time and times, and the dividing of time. Such a period cannot be interpreted as seven times, but it can be interpreted as three-and-a-half times. However, in Revelation chapter 13, we see another vision, and this time it is only of two beasts. The first has seven heads and ten horns, and therefore it may be associated with the fourth beast of the first part of the vision in Daniel chapter 7, which had ten horns. This vision in the Revelation has seven heads because it covers a greater period of time than Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's prophecy concerns only the future from his own time, and the Revelation concerns past, present, and future from John's time. But this first beast of the Revelation also has other features similar to the four beasts of Daniel 7, where each are associated with the leopard, the bear, and the lion. By these and other similarities, we see that these two chapters may certainly be correlated, although one has a greater scope than the other. The second beast of Revelation chapter 13 rises from the head of the first beast when it is smitten. The description of the second beast may be correlated with the little horn that rises out from the fourth beast in the second part of the vision in Daniel chapter 7. There are other similarities which beckon a much longer discussion than this. Upon correlating these two visions, Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, we see a description of a series of empires, which govern the whole world as it is known at each of their times, followed by another world power, which may be identified with the Roman Catholic papacy. Daniel chapter 7 dates the second entity to three and a half times, and the Revelation dates the first to 42 months, which is also a period equivalent to three and a half years. This period may then be interpreted as signifying three and a half prophetic times.
0: And together we then see the seven times
1: of the punishment of Israel. A day in prophecy being the equivalent of a year in the time of man. and and we see that from Numbers chapter 14, from Ezekiel chapter 4, the seven times of punishment is equivalent to 2,520 years. Forty-two months, the time of the first beast of the Revelation, is half of this period, or 1,260 prophetic days. This 2,520-year period is nearly the exact length of time in the Reckoning of Men, that the children of Israel were first ruled over by a series of empires which began with the Assyrians, dated in the Revelation, and then by the papacy in Rome, dated by Daniel. This is explained in, a, in much greater detail in our series on the Revelation in the segment for Revelation chapter 13. While our purpose here is not to offer a full interpretation of these prophecies in Daniel and in the Revelation, we hope to have explained sufficiently that for the sins of the children of Israel, they were long ago appointed by Yahweh their God to undergo a period of chastisement which Christ himself could not reverse. But rather, which even Christ himself submitted to. And we will elucidate that shortly. This punishment
0: for Israel was to last for a specified period of seven times, which in total are evidently a period
1: equivalent to a period of 2,520 years. Today, that period has transpired, but there are still other prophecies which deal with the present predicament. However, the first advent of the Christ had occurred at a point where only about three-tenths of that time of punishment had elapsed, roughly 750 years, since Rome was still in power when Paul wrote, Paul himself must have understood this to some degree. And he acknowledges it in the very first verse of this chapter. And
0: with that, we will commence with Romans chapter 13. Every soul must be subject to more powerful
1: authorities since there is no authority except from Yahweh
0: than those who are, and some manuscripts add authorities, by Yahweh they are appointed. From Matthew chapter 26,
1: immediately after a crowd from the temple descended upon the garden, of Gethsemane, and Judas Iscariot embraced Joshua Christ with the legendary traitor's kiss. We read from verse 50. Then Joshua said to him, Friend, for what are you here? Then, having come forth,
0: they laid hands upon Joshua and seized him. And behold, One of those, with Joshua, extending the hand,
1: drew his sword, and smiting the servant of the high priest, took off his ear. Then Joshua says to him, Return your sword into its place, for all those taking the sword shall be destroyed by the sword. Or do you suppose that I am not able to summon my father, and he shall have come to me now over twelve legions, of messengers then how would the writings be fulfilled that thusly it is necessary to happen the writings found in Moses and the prophets were Yahweh's decree not only for the children of Israel but for Christ himself as well and they all had to be fulfilled since the Word of God does not change God must abide by his own word. Therefore, while Christ came for the redemption of Israel, he also, by necessity, had to subject himself to those decrees found in the prophets so that his word would indeed be fulfilled. Paul also explained this, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where in part he says that at the consummation, Yahweh would abolish all rule and all license and all power, meaning the end of these worldly powers which he decreed. Paul then explained, that Christ himself is subject to these same things until that
0: consummation actually takes place, where he said, in verses 27 and 28 of that same chapter,
1: now, until it may be said that it is evident that all things have been subjected, meaning subjected to Christ, Because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself, and until all things are in subjection to him, then also the Son of Man himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself, in order that Yahweh may be all things among all. So Paul understood that Christ was indeed subject to the writings in the books of the Prophets. This subjection is evident once again in John chapter 19 from verse 8. Then when Pilate heard this word, referring to the accusations of the Jews, still more he feared, and he entered into the praetorium again and says to Joshua, From where are you? But Joshua gave him no reply. Therefore Pilate says to him, you do not speak to me, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Joshua replied to him, you do not have any authority over me if it was not given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater fault. Joshua recognized Pilate's authority, but reminded Pilate that such authority must have come from God. Pilate was an agent of Rome. Rome was the fourth beast of Daniel chapters 2 and 7. The word of God ordained that authority, having presaged the Roman Empire. And by necessity, Christ was subject to it. Here in the first verse of Romans chapter 13, Paul is warning that by necessity, by the same necessity, all men are subject likewise. Verse 2. Consequently, one opposing the authority has opposed the authority ordinance of Yahweh and they who are
0: in opposition will themselves receive judgment. Although it is noble to think in such a manner and
1: it is, many Christians and especially identity Christians feel that they should only have to submit themselves to righteous governments However, that is simply not the case. In fact, the Roman Empire was ordained by God, and Christ submitted himself to its authority. But with certainty, the Roman Empire was not always a righteous government. In fact, in the same century that Christ lived, it was often a pretty vile and disgusting government, especially under Caligula, who lived before the crucifixion,
0: and Nero, who lived and ruled not long after the crucifixion. Even if Paul commended the Romans for building a society
1: based on the rule of law, in the second chapter of this epistle, Paul himself had also described at length just how unrighteous Roman society was in the first chapter of this epistle neither was the Babylonian Empire a righteous government in fact in the Revelation the current world system of globalism and debauchery isn't called mystery Babylon by chance yet the word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah that whatever nations did not submit to its yoke, Yahweh would punish and destroy, and those which did submit to the Babylonians would survive. From Jeremiah chapter 27, from verse 5, the word of Yahweh, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it unto whom it seemed to me unto me, even when that's the adversary. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son, until the very time of his land come. And that was exactly right when you examine history. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. And it shall come to pass that the nation and kingdom which will not serve the same Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, saith Yahweh, with the sword, and with famine, and with the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore, speaking to the people of Judah, hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your dreamers, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they they prophesy a lie unto you, to remove you far from your land, and that I should drive you out, and you should perish. But the nations that bring their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him, those will I let remain still in their own land, saith Yahweh, and they shall till it and dwell therein. Yahweh decreed this period of punishment for the children of Israel. And they had no choice but to comply. By complying, their path is made easier, and by resisting, They are crushed by the beast. In Jeremiah chapter 29, they were advised while in Babylonian captivity that they may as well build houses and plant gardens because they were going to be in captivity for a long time. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. Now do you desire... To not be fearful of the authority.
0: Practice good and you will have approval from it. The interpretation of the word it is not subjective.
1: Paul did not say that the authority would do no evil. Paul only said that if Christians do good, then they would have approval from it, and since the Greek pronoun matches in gender and in number, the Greek word for authority, the pronoun must be referring to the authority. Paul is saying that the authority will approve of those practicing good works. That word translated as approval here, the word Strong's number, 1868, could be praise or commendation, and the King James Version rendered it as praise, and that's fine. Paul has also outlined what those good works are, (coughs) which he discussed at length in Romans chapter 12, and he outlines in part later in this chapter He outlines some of the things which Christians must do in order to comply with the word of God concerning submission to these worldly authorities. This is not, however, this is not, and this is important, this is not an acceptance of worldly authority. Rather, This is an acceptance of the chastisement from God which came as a result of the disobedience of the children of Israel. Christians submitting themselves to the word of God must submit to these same things which even
0: Christ submitted to for that same reason. We have explained in brief that period of the
1: punishment of the children of Israel under these tyrants was to last for seven times, or 2,520 years. And that period has now passed. The founders of this, the the former, let me put it that way, the founders of the former American republic, because it's not the republic anymore, They repeated the adage that rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. And that phrase was appropriate for their very time. For they were among those chosen by God to, to end the period of Israel's submission to the beasts of Daniel chapters 2 and 7 and Revelation chapter 13. And that's fine but we have to understand these in the biblical prophetic context as well as the historical. The founding fathers, they were the device which Yahweh God used to free us from the beasts of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 13, and that's fine. But the founding fathers were not, the chosen Savior, who would redeem the children of Israel from captivity and the powers of darkness, where they still stand. Yes, they do. Now, the children of Israel are in a different time, and they are under different prophecies. Today we perceive that we are in a period of self-government or democracy, everywhere in Christendom. Yet this is truly what the scripture calls the time of Jacob's trouble. And the children of Esau have come to rule over the children of Israel. The children of Israel, they thought they could rule themselves. And that experiment has also failed miserably. This is where as it says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, for Yahweh has bestowed it into their hearts to do
0: his will and to have one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of Yahweh shall be accomplished.
1: The beast to which the kingdom or Christendom has been delivered, is the eighth beast of revelation, world jewelry. This is the time of Esau, which was
0: prophesied by Isaac himself. In Genesis chapter 27, verse
1: 39, speaking to Esau, And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, Thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. And by the sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass, when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. The children of Esau, the Edomite Jews, now have the dominion through the world's banking system. In the captivity of Egypt, (laughs) excuse me, in the captivity of Egypt, the children of Israel submitted themselves to the good graces of that nation voluntarily. Sound familiar. Especially since one of their own brothers was second in command of the kingdom. Imagine that. Doesn't that sound like 1913? in a premonition. But a Pharaoh arose, which knew not Joseph. And under that Pharaoh, the Egyptians oppressed and enslaved the children of Israel. This too was the purpose of Yahweh God, who said to Pharaoh, and in very deed, for this cause I have raised thee up to show in thee my power,
0: and that my name, may be declared throughout all the earth exodus 916
1: now one may think it to be quite unlikely that the present-day government could become as evil as the government of pharaoh did when it oppressed the israelites in egypt however in different ways our government is certainly just as evil today. The Pharaoh forced the Israelites to make brick and gave them straw to do it. And then he withheld the straw, but continued to demand a brick. We have many equivalents to that scenario today in the form of oppressive taxes on lands, on homes, and on businesses. Whether or not those things generate sufficient income to nourish their operators. That Pharaoh even forced the Israelites to expose their infant children to the elements that they may die. We have an equivalent of that today too. Today, we are forced to accept wild beasts as people. We are forced to allow the beasts to live among us, and daily we, and especially our women and children, are exposed to these beasts so that we may die. When one sees Negro youths roaming white neighborhoods looking for prey, and the whites can do nothing to defend themselves from
0: the inevitable savagery, we have the equivalent of a pharaoh forcing us to expose our children to the elements.
1: And this has been happening throughout Christendom for at least, 75 years already, longer in some places. In the captivity of Egypt, the children of Israel were helpless, unarmed, and could not even think to deliver themselves. The children of Israel must yet learn that
0: same lesson, that they cannot deliver themselves. Therefore, the word of God says, in
1: 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name shall
0: humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from
1: heaven and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And only he is the solution. Continuing from where Paul said in verse 3, practice good, and you will have approval from it. A servant of Yahweh is to you for good, but if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh, is an avenger with wrath to he who has practiced evil, on which account to be subordinate is a necessity, not only because of indignation, the indignation which God had upon ancient Israel and which the government will have upon you if you're not subordinate, but also because of conscience. We have seen what the word of Yahweh said. In Jeremiah, that those who did not submit to Babylon, as he demanded, as Yahweh demanded, would be destroyed by the Babylonians. Evidence that Yahweh had continued to execute his judgments and take vengeance both through and upon his people by the agency of the Roman government is found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13, and we read the following account from verse 1. Then there were some present at that time who reported to him, meaning to Christ, concerning the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And replying, he said to them, Do you suppose that those Galileans had been wrongdoers beyond all the Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I say to you, but if you, do not, if you do not repent, all of you likewise shall be destroyed. Or those eighteen men upon whom the tower in Siloam had fallen and killed them, do you suppose that they had been debtors beyond all the men who were dwelling in Jerusalem? No, I say to you, but if you do not repent, all of you in like manner shall be destroyed. While government is often the vehicle employed, judgment comes from God, and it usually comes as a punishment for sin, whether of the individual or sin of the nation. It is not a coincidence that the English word crisis, and the Greek, I'm sorry, The Germans also have a very similar word. The English word crisis is derived from the Greek word tresis, which means judgment. Whenever there is a crisis, Christians should always view that crisis as a judgment from God. Our German and English ancestors did, and that is why they borrowed a Greek word meaning judgment in order to describe calamity. Here we also see the words of Christ uphold the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 13, that if one does good works, he has nothing to fear of anyone. But if one's works are not good, a tyrannical government is one device, whereby Yahweh God punishes the disobedient among his people. Pilate mixed the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices, evidently having them slaughtered. And Christ asks if those men were sinners above all others of their nation. Then he warns the living that they repent lest the same thing should befall
0: them. That nation, that warning fully corroborates Paul's words
1: at Romans chapter 13. And even unjust governments are therefore a punishment upon the disobedient. One may ask, but why did the just suffer likewise on account of the unjust? Yet that is also clear in Scripture. And one instance is found in Ezekiel chapter 21, that the righteous often suffer on account of the wicked man among them, and that the sword of Yahweh is employed in the hands of chosen chastisers, as Paul describes here in Romans, which in the case of Ezekiel chapter 21 was also said of the invading Babylonians. We will read from verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophecy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath, and it shall not return any more. Along these same lines, we see the same event prophesied in Habakkuk in chapter 1 where the prophet says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked do compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceeds. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe that would be told of you. For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. The sword of Ezekiel chapter 21 is that same sword which is referred to by Paul here in Romans chapter 13 where he states that every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities because the children of Israel disobeyed Yahweh. They will be turned over to the dragon and the beast. Since there is no authority except from Yahweh, then those who are, by Yahweh, they are appointed. The cruel Babylonians were appointed by Yahweh to chastise the remnant of Israel at Jerusalem both the good figs and the bad, both the righteous and the wicked. Consequently, one opposing the authority has opposed the ordinance of Yahweh, and they who are in opposition will themselves receive judgment. The word of Yahweh insisted that the nations, including Israel, submit themselves to the Babylonians, as it is, as it is written in Jeremiah chapter 27. And from that period, the book of Nezor. The of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was told that he would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell, and that they wouldn't have a choice. For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. Now do you desire to not be fearful of the authority? Practice good, and you will have approval from it. A servant of Yahweh is to you for good. But if you practice evil, be fearful for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh is an avenger with wrath to he who has practiced evil. Christians should be aloof from evil world governments. Christians, having come out from the world, not to be attached to the world, not to love the world, And therefore, Christians should see those governments as chastisers of the wicked. Seeking to do the will of our God, we pray not to be chastised ourselves. So Paul says, on which account to be subordinate is a necessity, not only because of indignation, but also because of conscience. And the attitude Paul presents towards tyrannical government in Romans 13 is the same attitude which Christ presented in Luke chapter 11, which Christ presented in John chapter 19, and which Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Habakkuk, all present from the word of Yahweh in relation to the invasions of Judah by the Babylonians. When the people of Yahweh submit themselves to their God, only then shall the oppression of worldly government cease. When my people... The word servant appears twice in verse 4. And that's the Greek word, diakonis. And we explained at length while presenting Romans chapter 12 that the word may mean or minister. But that the word is minister, wherever the word is minister, which is a word, minister is only a synonym for servant. Paul means to say that the government, whether for good or for evil, as God uses government for His purposes. As we have already shown from both the words of the prophets, from the gospel, and from biblical history, this idea is indeed found throughout Scripture that Yahweh God uses governments in order to chastise His people. In the next passage, we chose to render diaconus as minister. But once again, the word refers to governments as servants of God. And that's in verse 6 of Romans 13. For this reason, you also pay tribute. They are ministers of Yahweh, obstinately persisting in this same thing. Since nothing exists outside of the permissive will of God, all governments are ultimately the servants of Yahweh. Governments exist for his purposes, to serve him, whether for good or evil, his permissive will. He turned the
0: control of world governments over to the devil to chastise his children. From Jeremiah chapter 18, from verse 11,
1: Now therefore, go. Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return you now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And that device, once again, was the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Judah. Speaking in a prophecy of the future at that time when Isaiah wrote, "Persian of the future Persian king whom we know as Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 45, "For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee." Though thou hast not known me, I am Yahweh, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I go to thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I form the light, and I create the darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, Yahweh, do all these things. And here, we must be careful of the biblical context. It is not proper to say that Yahweh creates evil which is in opposition to himself. That evil is the result of the sins of men. But Yahweh creates evil which is evil in the perspective of man while in his perspective, it is the chastisement of man for sin, which is ultimately for his good. The kingdom of Cyrus, which Isaiah 45 prophecies of, is one example in the Bible of government raised up by God to do something good. Ostensibly, there are other examples in history. You won't find one today. Verse 7,
0: therefore render to all debts, to
1: whom tribute, tribute, to whom taxes, taxes, to whom reverence, reverence, to whom dignity, dignity. Paul is again in agreement with the Gospels. Here is a clear example from Matthew chapter 22. Then going, the Pharisees took counsel how they may entrap him in speech speaking of Christ. And they send to him, their students, with those of the partisans of Herodotus, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and in the way of God you teach in truth, and in you there is no thought for anyone, for you do not look at the stature of man. Therefore tell us, what do you suppose? Is it lawful to give the tax to Caesar or not? And Yahshua, knowing their wickedness, said, knowing they were going to call the IRS, Why do you try me, hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they presented to him a denarium. And he says to them, Whose image and inscription is it? They say to him, Caesar's. Then he says to them, Therefore render to Caesar." Therefore, render to Caesar the things of Caesar, and to Yahweh the things of Yahweh. And hearing it, they marveled, and leaving him, they departed. Today, and I've actually known Christian identity tax protesters in prison, several of them. Today, if one desires not to pay his taxes, he had better first check the inscriptions on the currency in his wallet and see to whom it is that the currency belongs. You are better off paying your taxes than sitting in prison, where you will be a burden to your brethren, and shall most likely be in no position to serve your God. Verse 8, Romans chapter 13. You owe to no one anything. In other words, we should have no debt. He doesn't mean that by that we have no obligation, we have no debt, we don't borrow a usury, we don't borrow creating debt. You owe to no one anything, and if we do, we pay it, except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust, and any other commandment is summarized in this saying, to wit, you
0: shall love him near to you as yourself. After the phrase, you shall not steal,
1: some manuscripts Insert, you shall not testify falsely, or you shall not bear false witness. There's a Greek phrase here, which is often the subject of dispute, because the Paul Bashers love to find disputes. The Greek phrase, kahi ai, are the two words it begins with. And if, kahi ai, and if literally, and if there be any other commandment. And that's the way the King James Version translates the phrase, and it makes it appear that Paul wasn't sure if there were other commandments or not, and that idea is ridiculous. The phrase i is literally and if, but it is also a Greek idiom, which in no way indicates that Paul had not known the rest of the law. For one explanation of the idiom, in his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer compares two phrases, kahi,
0: I, and if, and I kahi, or if also. If and. And Thayer says that In I, kahi,
1: the conditional particle I, if, has the greater force. And in kahi, I, the conjunctive particle kahi has the greater force. And then he goes on to say that hence, kahi, I, is used only of what is assumed to be true. And I, kahi, on the other hand, of what is said to be true. Now, this is only part of Thayer's explanation of the idiom, and he, in turn, is quoting it from another earlier grammarian. However, in the case of the phrase ai, which Paul uses here, we see that it was used of things assumed to be true. So Paul was by no means inferring that there were not any other commandments or that he didn't know as some of his critics often assert. Rather, Paul was fully inferring that there were other commandments. Another translation of this clause, which upon considering the idiom would certainly be valid, but which was avoided so that we don't add words unnecessarily, but another valid translation of this clause could be, and although. There may be other commandments, and we can compare a similar phrase which Paul used in one Timothy chapter one, verse ten. Paul here in romans thirteen nine quotes from the ten commandments however and, and, and the ten commandments appear in exodus chapter twenty, Leviticus chapter nineteen, Deuteronomy chapter five however, the commandment To love thy neighbor as thyself is found in our Old Testament only at Leviticus 19, verse 18. And I'll read the entire passage. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt
0: love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh." The word translated as neighbor from the Greek is most often the
1: adverb placeon and usually it's accompanied with the definite article. (laughs) It is a word which by itself distinguishes neither geographical proximity nor closeness in relationship. You can't tell either which way is being used by the use of the word. However, there were other Greek words which did describe geographical proximity. And those words were also translated as neighbor in the King James Version. There's the word gaiton, which is simply someone of the same land, anybody of the same land. There's the word perioikos. Perioikos only means somebody dwelling around you, in geography, somebody who lives nearby, and they're both used in Luke and in John. These words do express geographic proximity, but placeon describes only one who is close or near. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Christ says, "Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy." And that phrase would have no meaning if one's enemy lived in the house next door. So therefore, it should be evident, or if one's enemy lived across town. So therefore, it should be evident that Tom describes one who is near to another, but not necessarily in the geographical sense. Rather, one near in relationship is how the word should be understood in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, verse 27, gives an account of the events recorded in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where one Israelite is referred to as the placion, or neighbor, as the King James has it, in relation to another Israelite, but not in relation to to the dead Egyptian. But Moses, as evidenced in the Exodus account, could not have known that these men lived in close proximity to one another. As we currently understand the meaning of the term neighbor, Moses could only have known that the men had a tribal relationship. And that's because people of different tribes had different customs and manners of dress. The Hebrew word in the original text of the command, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is Strong's Hebrew number 7453, reyah, and it is defined as an associate. Strong's then lists brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, neighbor, among the ways in which the King James Version translates the word. And therefore, it should be certainly evident that tom from which this word is often, from, from, which is often translated from this word reah, is simply not one who lives nearby. In Levit- Leviticus 19.18, we see the bounds in which the word is used defined for us in this same manner. Since neighbor can only refer back to one of the children of thy people,
0: according to the commandment as it is given, the Hebrew word from which the word meaning neighbor is derived in, in the Hebrew
1: word from which the word meaning neighbor, which we see in Leviticus 19.18, is derived. That word is reah. It's spelled a little differently. Strong's number 7462, and it's defined by strong as a primitive root, to tend a flock, to pasture it, or in the intransitive use, to graze. It can also mean by association, by extension I mean, to associate with. So it is apparent that if one is a member of the flock, then one's placeon, or neighbor, can only be a member of the same flock, a fellow sheep. So we see that if one is of your flock, he is a neighbor. Because that's where the idea came from in the Hebrew word, in the original Hebrew word. But if one is not of your flock, he cannot ever be a neighbor. A wolf who moves into the neighborhood, a wolf who moves into the sheepfold, can never be a sheep. And therefore, he can never be a neighbor. Your neighbor... You shall love your neighbor as as yourself. Your neighbor can only be one of the children of your people, according to Leviticus. Verse 10, love for him near to you. This is why we avoided the term neighbor in the Christian New Testament, because the word has been corrupted in its meaning. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. That phrase, love for him near to you who does not practice evil, may have been written, love to an evil neighbor does not work. Depending on whether the verb is considered to be a part of the subject predicate or a part of the object of the statement. The rendering of this verse as it reads in the King James Version and in other popular translations must be rejected because those versions separate two words, placyon and kekon, which are neighbor and evil. One is an adverb used as a substantive as a noun. The
0: other is an adjective. But since, because both of these words are
1: in the accusative case, they must be understood as a unit. They agree in case, in gender, and in number. In Greek, an adjective agrees, in case, gender, and number, with the noun that it modifies. And that
0: is the precise circumstance here. The popular translations of this passage must also be rejected because the negative
1: particle typically precedes, not follows, it typically precedes the word that it negates. And in this case, it precedes the verb for work. Paul's intent, especially considering the balance of the statement where he says, therefore fulfilling of the law is love. Paul's intent is obviously to qualify the word for neighbor in the commandment which he quotes in verse 9 you shall love him near to you as yourself, or thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul is qualifying that with the idea that love for an evil neighbor does not work. Evil and neighbor. In this passage, the two words grammatically cannot be separated. They are both, in the accusative case of the same gender and number. They have to be understood as a unit. (laughs) Neither is Paul saying that love is the fulfillment of the law in the sense that love can replace the Christian obligation to keep the law. That's not what Paul's saying. Sadly, that is the way that most so-called Christians read the phrase But it's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that if one fulfills the law, that is love. Because Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Paul said, fulfilling of the law is love. He didn't say love is the fulfilling of the law. He said, fulfilling of the law is love. And if we are to have, loving relationships without Christian brethren, then all parties involved must seek to keep the commandments. Likewise, Paul said in verse 8 that he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That doesn't mean that you don't have to pay attention to the law because you claim to love somebody.
0: Why then would Paul mention any of the commandments here? Fulfilling of the law is love. If we are to have loving relationships with our Christian
1: brethren, then all parties involved must seek to keep the commandments. Christians who truly love their brethren have been keeping the commandments of Christ. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. He who loves another has been keeping the commandments, which Paul goes on to recite. Christians are not obligated to love the wicked or the wolves who merely happen to live in their vicinity. That's crazy.
0: And that's absolutely contrary to the language of Paul. Verse 11. Likewise, seeing the time that hour we
1: are all ready to be aroused out of sleep. For now it is nearer to our deliverance than we had believed.
0: Than when we had believed. The night has advanced and the day is drawn near.
1: Therefore we must put away the works of darkness and put on
0: the armor of light. Some manuscripts have works of light. In many places in the gospel, we can see
1: the basis for Paul's teaching that the coming of Christ was indeed, or is indeed, even to this day, imminent. And that Christians, right from the beginning, the proper attitude for Christians was to live as if the coming of Christ was imminent. Here is one of those places from Luke chapter twelve. Fear not, little flock, because it is pleased your father to give to you the kingdom. You sell your belongings and give charity. Make for yourselves purses which do not grow old, and unfailing treasure in the heavens, which thief does not approach, nor moth corrupt. <laughs> For where your treasure is, there also your heart shall be. Your loins must be girded, and lamps burning, and you be like men expecting their master, when he may return from the wedding, that coming and knocking, immediately they may open for him. Blessed are those servants, who the master coming shall find a way. Truly I say to you, that he shall gird himself and have them recline, and coming forth shall serve them, even if in the second and in the third watch he should come and find us,ly blessed are they. But you must know this, that if the master of the house had known in which hour the thief comes, he would not have allowed his house to be dug through. And you also must be ready, because in the hour which you do not expect comes the Son of Man, Of course, Christians even today should continue to believe that the coming of their Redeemer is imminent, and in that manner, continue to walk in his law, that they not be caught up in sin, as Paul explains next in verse 13. As in a day, we shall walk honorably, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lasciviousness and licentiousness, not in strife and jealousy. Rather, put on Prince Joshua Christ and do not fashion for lust provision of the flesh. Fashioning for lust the provisions of the flesh is precisely what Christ had discussed in that same part of his discourse in Luke chapter 12, which leads up to, what we have just cited in reference to verses 11 and 12. So we'll back up a little in Luke 12 and read from verse 22. Then he said to his students, For this reason I say to you, do not have care for the soul, what you should eat, or for the body, what you should be clothed in. For the soul is greater than food, and the body than clothing. And under verse 29, Then you do not seek what you should eat and what you should drink, and do not get excited or agitated. For all these things the nations of the society seek after, but your Father knows what, that you have need of these things. Moreover, you seek his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Examining the words of Christ in that chapter, It is not intended that Christians should not prepare for their meals or to keep a pantry or a root cellar. In fact, in the same chapter of Luke, Christ had earlier given the parable of the rich man who had a storehouse for his goods. What the rich man did wrong was that when he had too much goods for his storehouse, he then tore it down to build a larger one when the first storehouse was sufficient. Then later he said, in that same chapter, who then is the faithful, sensible steward, whom the master appoints over his attendants to give the allotment of grain at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, who coming his master finds him doing thusly. So there's nothing wrong with storing the produce of your garden, or keeping a pantry. Rather, the admonition is that Christians should not amass wealth in this life, but rather share what excess they have with their brethren, building the kingdom of Yahweh here on earth, and thereby storing up treasure in heaven. Having this attitude, Christians can walk honorably, and not in revelry, drunkenness, lasciviousness, licentiousness, strife, and jealousy, as Paul admonishes here. Amassing wealth in this life, one will indeed attract the attention of those governments which Yahweh God uses as his servants in order to punish the disobedient. All of these ideas which Paul presents in
0: Romans chapter 13, are harmonized with that understanding. I will be here tomorrow night with Brother Ryan. Next week, Yahweh willing,
1: Romans chapter 14. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.